0: What will be the impacts of the secretive Trans-Pacific Partnership currently being negotiated in Lima, Peru? Is the TPP going to generate new skilled jobs and investment and re-energize the global economy as proponents believe? Or does the TPP and so-called free trade generally signal a transition away from sovereign democratic states to global governance under corporate rule? We will discuss these points with analysts in three countries Council of Canadians trade campaigner Stuart True, Washington Fair Trade Coalition Executive Director Kristen Beifus, and Kuala Lumpur based Niall Bowie. On today's program Globalization Watch Stop the TPP. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 16th, 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. You can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of recent articles from the Global Research News site. Recent reports from the ground suggest that America and its allies are losing their covert war in support of the al-Nusra front. In recent weeks, the U.S.-sponsored al-Qaeda-affiliated rebels have been decimated by the Syrian armed forces. Now that al-Nusra... An entity created and sponsored by Western intelligence is being decimated by the Syrian armed forces. The U.S. and its allies are calling for the channeling of weapons and financial support to the more moderate, non-Islamist rebel factions. What these developments suggest is that al-Nusra rebels are cannon fodder. Washington, in consultation with its Western allies, has decided to sacrifice its al-Qaeda-affiliated foot soldiers who are now being decimated by the Syrian army. That was from the article, America is Losing Its Covert Syria War, U.S. Sponsored Al-Nusra Rebels Defeated by Syrian Armed Forces by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, dated May 12th. The Basel Committee on Banking Supervision is closely associated with supranational organizations like the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, which is often called the club, the headquarters of central banks, or the central bank of last resort. All of the committee's documentation is centered around an incredibly simple ratio, equity. A bank's capital equals capital adequacy ratio. Kabbalists of the money world are looking for this ratio's magic number, which would guarantee the stability of the banking system. In fact, the committee is seeking to legitimize what is a crime. Figuratively speaking, this system allows banks to make money out of thin air. That comes from the Basel Committee and the Global Banking Mafia by Valentin Katasonov, dated May 9th and originally posted to Strategic Cultural Foundation. Exactly how many people were injured as a result of the April 15th Boston Marathon bombing? An official tally from the Boston Public Health Commission puts the number at an incredible 282 injured and 4 killed, including MIT police officer Sean Collier. On the same day, Reuters reported 264 people injured. In sum, the photos, videos, stories, and figures comprising the mediated BMB do do not add up and suggest elements of a manufactured event. The inflated injury count provided by the city of Boston is not readily supported by existing visual documentation of the two bombings where at most several dozen individuals may have been seriously impacted. That was from the article, The Boston Marathon Bombings, Inflated Injury Tallies, by James Tracy, dated May 11th. By making a few subtle changes to a regulation in the U.S. Code titled, Defense Support of Civilian Law Enforcement Agencies, the military has quietly granted itself the ability to police the streets without obtaining prior local or state consent, upending a precedent that has been in place for more than two centuries. The most objectionable aspect of the regulatory change is the inclusion of vague language that permits military intervention in the event of civil disturbances. According to the rule, federal military commanders have the authority in extraordinary emergency circumstances where prior authorization by the president is impossible and duly constituted local authorities are unable to control the situation – to engage temporarily in activities that are necessary to quell large-scale, unexpected civil disturbances. Bruce Afran, a civil liberties attorney and constitutional law professor at Rutgers University, calls the rule, quote, a wanton power grab by the military, and says, quote, It's quite shocking, actually, because it violates the long-standing presumption that the military is under civilian control. That article comes from The Militarization of Domestic Law Enforcement, Pentagon Unilaterally Grants Itself Authority Over Civil Disturbances by Jed Maury, dated May 15th and originally posted at LongIslandPress.com. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Global Research is an independently run media hub for news, analysis, and opinion. To maintain its independence, Global Research does not receive funding from public or private foundations. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu. Joining us on the line right now from Toronto is Stuart True. He is the campaign trade campaigner for the Council of Canadians and uh, he's about to embark on a trade tour, a trade justice tour uh, that will uh, in the province of BC uh, in which he'll be talking about some of the um, major um, uh, so-called trade deals that uh, uh, that Canada is uh, uh, about to uh, ratify. Uh, and is in, in, in mentioning some of the things that, uh, reasons that Canadians should be concerned. So, Stuart Truth, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Michael. Now, uh, I, uh, you, they were talking about, uh, maybe we'll start with the, the TPP, the, the uh, Trans Pacific Partnership. Now, uh, Canada is one of about 12 countries that are involved in it. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, the Trans Pacific Partner uh, Partnership is all about?
1: Okay, well, I think the first thing, and you said it off the top there, um, I mean, the first thing we're trying to do on this trade tour is to talk about these agreements and how they're not really trade agreements. Um, these, are, these are very broad corporate rights pacts, which is what we'll be explaining on the tour. Um, the TPP is a lot like the uh, negotiations Canada's underway with, uh, with the European Union right now, which almost finished. Uh, very similar well in some respects there'll be a chapter in it that looks a lot like the FIPA with China the investment treaty with China and these are essentially um, as we'll be talking about in BC they're essentially um, they're essentially the rules right they're not so much about tariffs anymore because these have gone down quite a bit since the WTO and, uh, came into place in 1995 um, this is about the architecture of, of neoliberalism essentially it's about you know shrinking what government does Um, It's about uh, deregulation. It's about encouraging privatization uh, in sectors that are currently public, you know, power, health, these kinds of things. It's about empowering corporations to to challenge government policies they don't like. And in fact, in all three of the deals we'll be talking about, that's an important, I think probably most important part of these these trade deals is the rights, or rights in quotation marks, that corporations get to undermine government policies through these deals. Now, the TPP... You're right, it's got 12 members right now. Japan was the last one to join, and before that, of course, Canada and Mexico were allowed to the, the negotiating table last year. It's it's essentially, I mean, this has been called a trade deal to or, or the corporate rights deal, I suppose, to end all corporate rights deals. It's basically a WTO replacement um, designed by and for uh, U- U.S. corporations, essentially. Um, they want to replace the WTO, Is the main space where... Where trade and investment and regulatory discussions are are held, they want um, it to go beyond twelve countries eventually and have other countries dock into it. So you have to agree to U.S. terms to get into it. Instead of even at the WTO, where there's this semblance of a democratic process in the sense that you know developing and least developed countries actually have some power and some influence over the direction of global trade rules. In the TTP they don't, and so you have a U.S.-led um, you know, uh, US-fed negotiation, which is about seriously undermining the ability of, of other countries involved to, to develop sustainably, to, you know, um, <clears throat> to create jobs at home, to regulate the way they want to regulate. Um, and so that's, that's what's going on here.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the, there have been, um, a trade, there was an attempt at a hemispheric, trade agreement uh, involving uh, North America and South America and the Central American countries. Uh, I think there's about 40 countries involved called the Free Trade Area of the Americas. Um, Now, we're talking about a a different regional alliance here. Um, Why these countries in particular?
1: Well, I'm glad you brought up the FTA because I I think that's a good comparison between the TPP and uh, what's going on with the TPP. I mean, that was another effort by the United States and Canada to expand NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, into the hemisphere. And it came up against an impressive resistance movement, um, unified across borders, public resistance, um, which blended at the time with, with this new kind of pink tide in Latin America, where, where countries were seeing the impacts of, of these policies that were forced on them by the IMF or the World Bank. They were seeing that they weren't working. They were seeing Increased e- uh, inequality and poverty and indebtedness. So there was this kind of. The FTA was a combination, failed for the combination of, of those reasons. So what, are, what have they done? Well, the United States has now said, well, we're heading into the Pacific. Um, and there's, they're doing this for two reasons. One is to isolate China, essentially, right? So China is growing, obviously, quite quickly. Um, you know, authoritarian capitalism is working for, for China, but. There are elements in China, uh, for example, these strong state-owned enterprises, um, that the United States wants to see uh, curbed. It wants to see that kind of alternative models for development stopped, and it sees the TPP as a way to enforce in the Asia re- region <clears throat> and across, uh, also with a little bit of a, you know, another beach beachhead in Latin America because of the involvement of Chile and Peru, for example, in the TPP. It wants to see that those alternatives stop, and it sees to be a, a way of doing that. So I think that's an important dynamic that's happening here. Um, it's also a matter of, you know, path of least resistance. I mean, these people, these corporations and these ideologues inside governments in the U.S. or Canada think that this free trade model has been a blessing. Um, they, they look for any means that they can to pursue more and more aggressive liberalization, more and more aggressive deregulation, privatization. Um, clamping down on on uh, any kind of social policy that's designed to you know, improve all of our lives instead of the lives of just a few people at the top. And so this right now in the U.S. mind must be the path of least resistance. Let's try and get um, this agreement going and then use that to force that model onto the rest of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you uh what what uh, are the uh, as far as Canada is concerned? Um, I mean, you, you've mentioned you know so generally the the I guess erosion of uh, uh, the social sector and the, the ability for for governments to uh, basically bringing more power to to corporations. But uh, I mean, what what would that mean in in practical terms for Canadians?
1: Right. So if Canada's had. You know, Canada's had 20, 25 years already under free trade with the United States, 20 years with NAFTA um, as of this January. And the experience is not what we hear about in the news. In fact, you know, what we've seen under NAFTA is, you know, provinces like here in Ontario, there's been just the the cutting of manufacturing sector. You know, uh, jobs fled the country. Um, The jobs that are replacing those those high-paying jobs have been typically more precarious, have been lower paid. You know, Canada's become, like a lot of developed eco- uh, economies, since since they implemented free trade, has become more on the service side, right? So uh, less on the building things. Um, so the impact is on, I think, the quality of the Canadian economy in one respect. We've also seen Canada turn back the clock. So from, you know, World War II onwards, there were many efforts to improve again, improve the quality of the Canadian economy, what we're making. We were making a lot of things ourselves. Um, Now we've gone back to becoming a bit of a resource exporter and a a huge focus on mining and energy, oil and gas. And these things that are essentially like part of what we would hope would be the old economy. I mean, these are things we have to move away from if we're actually going to survive as a species. I think that's become quite obvious um, when we look at the, uh, the the information on climate change. So there's this there's this downgrading of the type of the Canadian economy, uh type of Canadian uh economic activities we do. And on top of that there's been a limiting of the kinds of public policies we can put in place because of these investment protections in NAFTA. So we have we've seen we've seen auto insurance companies threaten provinces who wanted to introduce public auto insurance. They said we're gonna see you for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars if you do that. We've seen uh, no substantial new social policies introduced in Canada in 20 years. And I think that's a direct uh, result of these free trade deals, which say you shouldn't be doing this. You should be getting out of the way and letting the private sector do that. So we don't have a national child care plan. We don't have a pharma care, pharma care plan that would lower costs of drugs for, uh, for, for our patients. right? Mm-hmm. This has been the impact on Canada, and we continually get get nailed by these NAFTA lawsuits. In fact, we're the sixth most sued country in the world under this regime where a company can say, listen, I don't like that environmental measure. It's it's expropriating my investment. It's expropriating my profits. Um, We're not being treated fairly. And uh, we're currently being hit by about, I think, 5 billion worth of these lawsuits against things like the fracking uh, moratorium, the moratorium on shale gas exploration in Quebec, or against uh, the Green Energy Act in Ontario. So I think the results we've seen in Canada under NAFTA is, it, it should, we should be, you know, asking ourselves why we would do this again. Why would we go further down that path in the TPP? And that it's a long, long-winded way to get to your question about how will the TPP be different. Well, the TPP is gonna, you know, it's not just going after state-owned enterprises, um, in, in China. I mean, it is about curbing what state-owned enterprises do across the TPP region. That includes liquor boards. It includes Public utilities here in Canada. So again, another, another push to privatize these sectors, you know. Um, it's going to include an attack on supply management, an attack on Canada's dairy and poultry farmers because U.S. Um, and Australian and New Zealand farmers want to be able to flood the Canadian market with their, with their cheaper product. And of course, that's going to put farmers, a lot of farmers in Canada out of business. Uh, it will undermine farming communities where where dairy farmers play a strong role in a lot of provinces um, in keeping those communities uh, healthy so i think we're going to see impacts like that and again on the issue of drug costs people might have seen in the in the relation to the canada europe negotiations there's in the states there's big pharmaceutical companies that are pushing even stronger monopoly patent protections for their products and for their uh for the data they put into you are researching their products, and the overall result is going to be to to take it, uh, to make it more difficult or to, to make it longer before you can introduce cheaper competition onto the market. You're basically extending the period in which these companies can make more money on expensive drugs, and that's going to be bad for our health system. It's going to be bad for patients, and it's going to be bad especially for the developing countries in the TPP region who rely on cheap drugs in order to uh, make their uh, they, they rely on cheap drugs potentially for their own for their lives. Right? So the people are worried that people will die if these um, the TPP go, goes through with these kinds of intellectual property changes in it.
0: Mm. Now, <clears throat> uh, we, we, from the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, there's also the Transatlantic uh, Treaty that's uh, on the verge of being ratified, as I understand it. The, uh, the Canada-EU uh, trade agreement, known as CETA, uh, I, I'm wondering. If there's anything uh, particularly uh, noteworthy about CETA and and how CETA and TPP and NAFTA might sort of intersect and, and reinforce one another, could you address that?
1: It's an interesting question. It's one that certainly um, the Mexican go- Mexican government has been asking, and uh, people in the United States as well, some, some trade observers, saying, "Well, hang on, if Canada and now the United States are negotiating with Europe." Um, maybe there's a way to do a NAFTA-EU trade deal. That's a little ways down the road, I think. What's happening right now is Harper, the Harper government's in a rush to conclude essentially a TPP for the Atlantic, like you said. Um, It's going to be very similar, almost identical in most respects in the the extent that it goes beyond the current kind of trade and investment deals we have um, to empower corporations in a much more important way. Um, those negotiations could be uh, concluded in the next few weeks. Um, we might see an announcement that the Harper government has finished these CETA talks with Europe at the G8 summit in Northern Ireland in June uh, uh, 2017. Um, what what we have to think, uh, what we have to do, and part of this tour in BC is going to be talking about this is just because they conclude a deal doesn't mean they can sign a deal. It doesn't mean that. Harper can get this deal done, and I think it's important for Canadians that this deal not go through. Like we were talking about on drugs, it's going to to include more monopoly rights, more patent protections for brand-name pharmaceuticals. That's one of the most important European requests in this deal. It's going to bind our municipalities and our, our provinces. They're not going to be able to buy local anymore, and when I say that, I mean they're not going to be able to occasionally prefer to buy local goods, local food, local... Uh, components in their power plants, for example, this kind of buy local option just disappears for cities and for provinces as CETA goes through. And it's gonna have an even worse investment rights chapter than even NAFTA does. And we've seen this. We've seen the drafts that they're working with. We have a February 7th copy and we can, we can conclusively say that there will be more opportunities in CETA for European companies to challenge Canadian environmental policies, environmental measures than there is in NAFTA, and and that there would be in the Canada-China investment treaty. This is something that absolutely must be stopped. And the involvement, the the good news is the involvement of the U.S. in negotiations with the EU has sparked a a huge interest in the European Union among trade activists to, to take a look at the CETA and say, hang on a second, I mean, this deal with the United States is scary, but we have to template here in CETA. we have to fight this. And one thing they're going to be fighting very hard is the investment protections. One thing in Canada we can fight hard because people don't like the China super, because they're, they're getting used to or they're learning more about how in NAFTA, Canada's paying out companies hundreds of millions of dollars um, when they challenge environmental and other policies. I think that's something we have to be pushing back on very strongly in the CETA negotiations. And it will help us when we're talking and when we're thinking about how do we fight and beat the uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership as well, mm.
0: uh, you, you just uh, touched on the the Canada-China Foreign Investment Promotion and Protection Agreements, uh, the FIPA. Uh, is there any anything else you, you wanted to mention about that? Maybe uh, something that's uh, um, particularly uh, should be highlighted. Sure, and and thanks for, for the opportunity too. I mean the the China FIPA is
1: really you know something clicked in in the public mind, I think, in Canada, when that was negotiated in secret and and announced and all of a sudden it was like, wow, there it is, this treaty that's going to give China-based companies like CNOC um, the right to sue Canada if, if, you know, Canada says no to a pipeline or they say they want to put more regulations or or environmental measures onto fracking, for example, you know, this this is going to empower Chinese companies to really undermine Canadian policy and and Canada's... uh, uh, ability to control its resources. So I think um, the I think that was a very good thing, important thing to happen. Um, there's been some enormously um, successful campaigns, like hundreds of thousands of people, for example, signing petitions against the the with China. There was been a motion in the House of Commons to to not ratify it because it hasn't been ratified. And that's an interesting thing about this uh, this FIPA with China. It, it was signed, but it's not actually in, a, in effect yet. And so there is some hope that we can block it from being ratified. Um, and so what's happened from all of this is a, a First Nation in B.C., the Hoopa chusa uh, First Nation, has decided we're not going to let this slip. We're going to actually challenge this in the courts. And they filed an injunction against the FIPA on the grounds that it, it will violate Indigenous rights. And they have a good case uh, for that because the reality is if... Even if a decision a province or the federal government was required to take because of the responsibilities it has towards indigenous communities, First nations, even if it was required under treaties or under Canadian law, a company can still sue Canada for that decision. For example, we're not we're saying no to a pipeline. The company can still sue and get billions of dollars out of Canada um, for not being able to go through with their project. And so the hoopchuss have said, this is unconstitutional and they'll be testing that in court at, in early june so i think that's something that canadians can really t- uh, try and tap into when it's happening it'll be june i think it's june 4th to 6th um, and certainly we'll be updating people at canadians.org about uh, about the case we'll be following it but i think um, on the FIPA as well i think people have to realize that this is not this is not a one off deal this is not simply um something Canada wanted to do with China. We have FIPAs with dozens of countries, um, and in- increasingly the Harper government is signing FIPAs with African countries. So all of these rights that Chinese companies have to sue Canada, Canadian mining companies will have to sue African countries when they don't get their way. Yeah. So say it's a gold mine, copper mine, say it's an oil or gas project or pipeline. The implications are global and globally... Uh, very negative for for democracy and for people around the planet. So I think what we'll be doing on this tour is making the links between the FIPA with China and these other FIPAs, uh, as well as the Harper government's um, very aggressive mining and energy agenda, which does attempt to kind of charge into other countries and dig up things wherever they want, however they want, and basically grab the spoils and run. I mean, this is essentially Harper's energy superpower agenda, and it is so intertwined with these FIPAs Uh, that we have to really be fighting them on a concerted, we have to be fighting all of them, essentially, um, at the same time.
0: Now, I I just wanted to to ask you one more question, because I I know you've got to run in a minute, but uh, I'm wondering at the the political level, uh, you know, where the the, the different parties, I mean, the Harper Conservatives, uh, the government of Canada, is obviously very supportive of this uh, agenda, uh, but what about the opposition parties, and and what about uh, provincial parties, uh, political parties. Uh, are you seeing any opposition there?
1: Well, opposition, so in Ottawa, there's um, some Some people are, you know, how do I say this, um, uncomfortable. There's been discomfort with the Harper Trade Agenda, especially with the CETA, with Europe, and the TPP, and, and but there's been a lot of discomfort and opposition to the, the people with China. Um, To some extent, though, when we're looking at the European trade deal, and and you said it there, is there a provincial role? Absolutely there is. The provinces have been there at the negotiations. They've been playing a much bigger role than they have in the past, Um, basically negotiating away their ability to govern in certain areas. And it's going to be different in different provinces. I mean, that's a crazy thing about CETA, um, is that at the end of the day, your ability to govern as a province, as a community, is going to be different between whether you're in Ontario or Nova Scotia or, or, or Manitoba or wherever. And that is very odd from a constitutional perspective, as, as uh, trade lawyer Stephen Schreiber has been pointing out recently. But I think what we can do is, you know, Ottawa seems, might seem far away. I think people can go to their provinces and ask them what's going on. Um, they have been at the table. They have been trading away certain policies. We need to know what they are. We need to have a say provincially in what the deal looks like at the end of the day. And I have no confidence that we can get that kind of accountability from the Harper government. He's proved that, you know, despite his words about accountability in 2006 when he got elected, he just, that's gone. That was all words. But provincially, there's, I think, a bigger responsibility for the provinces to come down and to say, listen, this is what we're trying to do in CETA, what do you think? And if people don't like it, they should be able to change it. And the period to do that is going to be between concluding the negotiations, well, we can do it before. We should be demanding this right now and constantly. But if there, if an agreement is concluded and announced, we have to go very hard at our provinces and demand that you know demand that that level of democracy um, and accountability to make sure that we don't get screwed by these
0: trade deals. Stuart True is the trade campaigner for the Council of Canadians, uh, and he's about to embark uh, starting May twenty second on an eight. City Speaking Tour in BC to build opposition to Canada's corporate trade agenda. Stuart, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. When it comes to feelings in the U.S. about trade agreements, a 2012 Angus Reid poll found that three in four U.S. respondents across all political affiliations believe NAFTA has not been good for U.S. workers, two in three think it has been good, not been good for the U.S. economy, and a 2010 NBC Wall Street Journal poll found 86% of respondents across class and political parties agreed. Outsourcing of jobs by U.S. firms to low-wage foreign nations is the top cause for our economic woes. The Washington Fair Trade Coalition is made up of 65 labor, faith, environmental, family, farm, student, and social justice organizations, fair trade businesses, and cooperatives in Washington state committed to creating a fair, balanced, and sustainable global trading system. I spoke with Coalition Executive Director Kristen Bifus about the TPP as it affected Americans. Kristen, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me and for for covering the Trans-Pacific Partnership on your show.
0: Of course. Um, Now, Kristen, my impression is that uh, there's been more popular opposition to these uh, uh, so-called free trade agreements in the United States than we've seen in Canada. Uh, I remember, for example, in the lead-up to the 2008 presidential election when it seemed like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were duking it out to see who was more opposed to NAFTA. And now President Obama seems to have uh, switched gears and is aggressively pursuing this new trade deal. Could you maybe give us a a, a bit of a, a sketch of how the American experience has been with these deals?
2: Absolutely, um, and you're absolutely correct. Um, it was a campaign issue um, in in 2008, and obviously Canada is also part of NAFTA, um, and we're in our 20th year of NAFTA, and so we have 20 years of evidence of how NAFTA has not served workers in any of the three countries. But speaking um, from the perspective of of the U.S. and the, you know, massive loss of, of manufacturing, you know, over five million uh, manufacturing jobs have been lost in the U.S. and about 45,000 manufacturing facilities have actually moved um, to another location. And what we have found is that it's even been in sectors that seemed untouchable, such as, you know, call centers, engineering jobs, computer programming. So people who, you know, 20, 30 years ago felt that they got involved in jobs that were more secure, different from, you know, the automobile industry or other industries that have seen losses with other free trade agreements, found themselves in a very similar position with job loss. And we feel because of the huge opposition To NAFTA, um, you know, obviously the stalling of the WTO round here in Seattle in 1999. What our government has pursued is these bilateral trade agreements. And so, two, three years ago, there was um, there were three trade agreements. Actually, one with South Korea, one with Panama, one with Colombia. And so, with the with the Trans-Pacific Partnership has been this opportunity to reinvigorate these, uh, NAFTA resistance networks throughout Canada, Mexico, and now also with, you know, nine other countries that are also joining in to the TPP at this time. You had also asked about process, and part of the process is the problem with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So, um, here in the U.S., Congress, you know, are elected Government, the government of the people, where we have the most power, if you like, um, has the constitutional oversight of foreign commerce. And so technically, they should be the ones that are involved in negotiating this trade agreement to benefit the people who put them in office. However, what's happening right now, and it will come up, um, we feel, in the next two, three months, is that our executive branch, and we only elect one person in the executive branch, our president, has asked for Congress to give them the power to negotiate this trade agreement, and it's called Fast Track. And what this means is that trade negotiators who are appointed, we don't elect them, they will do all of the negotiating with these other countries. And then when it gets to Congress, they can only vote yes or no. And so if they disagree with some provisions, they want to change something, they're concerned about something, they will not have the power to do that. So we feel this is very much about our very democracy of who represents us, where our power is. Mm. So, And and the fact that we also don't know what's in these trade agreements, this trade agreement as it's being negotiated, it's very secretive. Um, Our concerns that we can concretely talk about are through leaked text because the process is um, very much closed doors. And even many of our members of Congress that we have reached out to to find out have found that the doors are closed to them as well. However, the doors are open to corporations, and there are um, some 600 corporations that have unlimited access to these texts. And so from the process point of view, we're very concerned who is at the table. It's not our elected officials. It's, it's not farmers. It's, it's not community groups that are being able to um, right the wrongs of past trade agreements.
0: Mm. Now, I, I know in Canada, uh, you know, Stuart, mentioned, Stuart True of the Council of Canadians mentioned the, the corrosive impact on established uh, programs that were established since World War II. Uh, uh, and um, I, I'm thinking maybe that's less of a concern in the U.S. Uh, I mean, for example, you don't have public health care the way Canada does. So I, I'm okay. wondering... Uh, what uh, aspects of the agreement uh, seem to be resonating with your fellow Americans?
2: Absolutely. Um, Well, this very much um, connects with a number of issues, um, both present as well as historical in the future. Um, One one of the big issues is is looking at some of the roots of um, forced economic migration. And we right now are talking in this country around... um, enabling some 10 million uh, migrants here in this country to be able to have access to citizenship and we are working to connect um, the issue of having migrants here in this country that are are, are grappling with um, so many issues once they get here but looking at why are they coming here um, why are people leaving their communities in Mexico um, risking their lives and leaving their families coming across the border, where here they have no rights, no access to the political process, no um, ability to have dignity as laborers here. Um, wh- what are the root causes of that? And we track that to these trade agreements such as NAFTA and, and others. And, um, and then also, you know, as our community groups are, are working on, um, you know, safe drinking water, access to healthy food. Uh, consumers are advocating for the right to know, um, uh, food labeling, you know, what what's in their food, or are they GMO foods? Um, also, you know, a, as you mentioned, access to generic drugs. I mean, this really resonates. As you know, the cost of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. are beyond reach for many people. Here, um, when you look globally, the access to to, to patented pharmaceuticals, such as antiretrovirals, um, it's out of reach for people who are making, you know, dollars a day. And um, with big pharma at the table, using this as an opportunity to extend um, the patent, we're very concerned. People here are very concerned. And it really resonates um, access to pharmaceuticals. And then also connecting um, our ever-extending global supply chain. So with all of what's happening in Bangladesh right now, um, with, you know, fires and factory collapses. It's really reminding people what was happening in the early 1900s here in the U.S. with the Triangle Shirtwaist fire and workers literally dying on the job um, needlessly because of lack of health and safety regulations for workers. And so that's really resonating with people here, um, recognizing that in Bangladesh they're where we were in the early
0: 1900s. Mm-hmm. Now uh, I, I'm reading from the uh, the Office of the United States Trade Representative website, and they're they're promoting the deal, saying that it will increase American exports and support American jobs. And uh, the the TB, TPP is the cornerstone of the Obama administration's economic policy in the Asia Pacific. The large and growing markets of the Asia Pacific already are key destinations for U.S. manufactured goods, agricultural products, and service suppliers. And it will the PPP will further deepen this trade and investment. Uh, what's your response to that uh, kind of rhetoric?
2: Yeah, it, it, it's this interesting myth that uh, exports alone um, is what will help um, uh, our economic growth. So not even looking at imports, um, and this is something, this is a, a number that is not looked at. And if you look at our other trade agreements, if you put imports into the equation, Um, our budget, um, our trade deficit actually increase with um, many of the countries that we have trade agreements with. The U.S. already has free trade agreements with six of the Trans-Pacific Partnership countries. And if you look at the other countries that we will potentially be entering into this agreement with, if you look at Vietnam, for example, the annual income of a person in Vietnam is somewhere along the lines of $1,400. So not a lot of buying power there. And similarly, Malaysia not a very um, the buying power of the average person is not very high. And then when you look at the other countries like New Zealand and Brunei, there's not many people in those countries. I mean Brunei has you know, less than half a million people in um, New Zealand, you know somewhere around four million people living in New, New Zealand. And so we just don't buy this um, this theory that the Trans-Pacific Partnership will really enable um, an expansion of uh, U.S. exports in countries where we already have free trade agreements, there's already goods and services that are flowing freely. And actually what we're hearing more about is job loss um, because of um, manufacturers. For example, New Balance, um, which is a, a, a shoe manufacturer here, they make uh, sports shoes, here in the U.S., and they're one of the few, I think they're potentially the only one that continues to be able to manufacture here. And they said if the Trans-Pacific Partnership goes forward and the um, the tariffs go down with Vietnam, that the jobs that they have here, they will have to move to Vietnam or else they will not be able to be competitive. So we we just don't buy that logic. The numbers do not add up um, with past trade agreements or with this trade agreement, actually.
0: Now, the, the TPP uh, 17th round of negotiations is taking place uh, this week in Lima, Peru. Uh, you are monitoring those negotiations. What, what are your uh, expectations around those negotiations? Uh, what are you expecting to come out of it or, or anticipating?
2: Um, well, as far as the content in, in the, on the negotiating table, that's something we don't have privy to. What we do know is that our allies in Peru have been organizing for months with other um uh groups throughout south and um central america and they're they're very much seeing this as uh, a disintegration policy where Chile and Peru are part of the TPP and Colombia and other Ecuador are not part of the TPP so they're very much seeing this as a, a new way of economically dividing countries in South America. So uh, Peru uh, resistors have invited parliamentarians throughout the TPP countries who are also questioning and have concerns around the TPP to come. And so they're organizing a number of different actions and, and, and street events that we're, we're very excited and, and we very much are aligned with them. We, we had actions just this past weekend. We're having a webinar on Friday, which I'm sure, uh, Stuart True with Council of Canadians talked about because they are at the floor of organizing it. And it's this opportunity for activists here in Washington state and the U.S. and Canada and other TPP countries to realize they're, they're not alone, that there is resistance happening. In in all the different countries, and and that by networking our issues and our shared concerns, we can put collective pressure on our elected officials to actually represent the people's interest, recognizing that our past trade agreements have not benefited workers in any of the countries um, in which we have trade agreements.
0: Kristen Byfus is the Executive Director of the Washington Fair Trade Coalition based in Seattle, Washington. Kristen, I want to thank you very much for, for sharing these uh, unique perspectives on this uh, new uh, generation of, of trade agreements. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much.
0: To get a perspective on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, from the perspective of uh, Southeast Asia, we're joined on the line now by political analyst and regular commentator for RT, Niall Bowie. Nile, thank you very much for joining us. W- what is the uh, incentive uh, from uh, Malaysia for where you're, you're part of the world? What uh, would the incentive be for uh, people there for your? government to uh, participate in this deal?
3: Well, I think I think we need to look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership as uh, the neoliberal arm of the U.S. pivot to Asia. So we have all these countries in Southeast Asia that basically uh, have more incentive to do business with China, and China is m- more or less a natural uh, ally for a lot of these countries in the region the united states you know with with its re uh, refocus on this part of the world uh many policy papers state the importance of southeast asia in in and uh, basically uh, counterbalancing the influence of of china in the region so that is what i perceive the ttp the TPP excuse me to be uh so incentive wise the promise is um, is unfettered access to us markets uh, more or less you know but if we if we look at the way the United States um, uh, has carried its itself its character internationally, it is never in the spirit of equality uh, and equal partnership for nation states it is uh, in the spirit of, of dominance I think uh, if we look a little closely at the uh, the stipulations of the deal, it is really to favor u uh, s uh, corporations, you know your Halliburtons, your Chevron's, your MPAAs, and what have you. Uh, so I think um, I think as far as Malaysia goes, Malaysia has a history as, as a non-aligned country, and especially under the uh, 22-year uh, premiership of uh, Dr. Mahathir Mohamad, Malaysia has very very much been a country that has um, has held steadfast to its own independent. Uh, Political and economic trajectory, and I think that's very important. And here in Malaysia, we have um, we have the political class, I think, getting closer to the United States. You know, the the current Prime Minister Najib Razak, because uh, it is a market-friendly country. There's no doubt about that. But I think uh, from reading the the mainstream newspapers and the party-owned newspapers, which are more significant, are are uh, the ruling party. I mean, are starting to. Uh, become a little bit more skeptical of the TPP, and, and uh, we're seeing that, from what I understand, uh, the, the full implications of the text have not really been um, realized by, by many government officials, but in this country we have figures uh, on both sides of the political divide within the government, uh, MPs and what have you, and, and members of the opposition who have uh, um, you know, expressed great skepticism and concern Implications uh, that would come with Malaysia signing the TPP agreement.
0: You're, you're, you're speaking about the the Asia pivot, and um, hmm. with with uh, the the military uh, realignments that are taking place in that region. The TPPA is principally uh, dealing with economics. It's dealing with uh, uh, you know. As I understand, it's really not you know, a, a trade agreement. It's uh, only two chapters, as, as far as I understand it, yeah. actually deal with That's trade. Right. So mm. uh, how do you see that, uh, I guess, the whole investor state uh, apparatus uh, you know, interacting with this uh, or that that sort of synergistic relationship, if that's what it is, operating between this agreement and the, the military, this U.S. military realignment in in that region.
3: Hmm. Well, I think I think quite simply, what this um, you you're right. Only two chapters of, of the 26 chapters that I know of uh, deal with uh, trade related issues, the slashing of tariffs, what have you. Essentially, the TPP is so dangerous because it makes signatory governments accountable basically for two multinational corporations for the costs imposed uh, by national laws, uh, regulations, uh, including your health regulations, your safety and environmental regulations. Uh, You mentioned the investor state. Well, the TPP is going to impose an investor protection that will uh, incentivize offshoring jobs through various uh, special benefit schemes uh, and what have you. Now, uh, what is also important to point out that uh, the TPP will prohibit bans on risky financial services. Uh, It will prevent countries from, uh, uh, what can we say, pursuing independent monetary policy like issuing capital controls. Uh, Countries will have to Permit the free flow of derivatives, currency speculation, and other financial instruments of the sort. And if we, uh, if we remember the Asian financial crisis in 1997, uh, Dr. Mahathir Mohammed spearheaded, uh, uh, basically Malaysia's uh, recovery from that crisis through, uh, kind of currency controls on Malaysian ringgit, uh, which, which allowed, uh, Malaysia to bounce back faster. Uh, so I think if we look at some of these things, um, it is really meant to uh, meant to bring signatory countries into a framework uh... whereby they are hindered from from really uh, pursuing independent policies and it, it is not quite like the european union in that sense but it it, it is moving in that sort of direction towards a a bureaucratic um, kind of a, a control grid over over uh, these countries who sign into it now Analysts who are higher authorities than me on this issue say that the TPP is basically a move to create a higher judicial authority, higher than the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, because it will allow foreign corporations to essentially sue national governments and tie them into the jurisdiction of international tribunals, which would be staffed by uh, private sector attorneys, uh, who hypothetically have the authority to... Order governments to pay cash compensation out of natural uh, national uh, treasuries to uh, foreign corporations and investors if any sort of government policy that's newer existing hinders the future expected future profits uh, for investors. So it is really a uh, a neoliberal overload. You know uh, what, the, what we know so far about the draft text. Now it's important to point out that what we know is based on leaks, and we only know about two of the two of these chapters that I'm aware of have leaked so far so what I know is based on the analysis of others who are higher authorities on these issues but what what you and I both I guess have to agree on is that it's pretty scary what's been laid out now the thrust of your question I haven't actually answered yet with respect to the US military realignment Um good question. Uh, as far as I know, no information has been released about uh, what kind of military uh, components would come with the TPP. But I mean, there's no doubt about it that uh, with the South China Sea issues and all of these um, these ongoing issues in the region, the U.S. will be there to uh, uh, provide security for countries like the Philippines and, and uh and and likewise and and i think the us is really dedicated to bringing about a situation where its security is required uh, or or it will be uh, it will position itself in a way to provide that kind of security through military bases through increased military installations and we see now over 60% of the us naval fleet stationed in this part of the world. So certainly these are well, uh, worrying developments, but I think this is the shape of things to come, you know, uh, in future presidential administrations
0: uh, in, in the months and years to come. In terms of what would uh, happen to Malaysian sovereignty uh, or, or sovereignty of other countries in the region, the, the, what would you be looking for uh, as being uh, significant in in terms of the way the, the the government, or in terms of the way the economy operates, let me go with whether we're talking resources or or social policy. What would be sort of the, the main um, uh, potential flashpoints should a TPP be ratified?
3: Sure. Well, the the, the other ones that I failed to mention, uh, and the ones that are the biggest points of concern for Malaysians, from what I can tell in the newspapers. Uh, one has to do with health, uh, medicines and things like that. The TPP would uh, extend uh, patents and things like that. So generic medications would uh, become uh, less affordable, you know, and things like that. So I, I believe the current Minister of Health uh, has, in in recent times issued statements, uh, kind of uh, uh, expressing deep skepticism in, in the TPP. and uh, and that certainly there is not uniformity in the government uh... about going forward about uh... with the TPP agreements uh... And, and the uh... and whatnot, but we don't have uh... again we don't have all the information so the people in the government here in Malaysia are not really on the same page uh, and the uh... the other point of concern is uh... how the internet could be stifled uh... because we see uh... Um, stipulations in the TPP that would uh... extend uh, or should we say that would um, make exchanging digital information uh, more difficult? You know, and it would also, um, I believe, some analysts have pointed out that stipulations in the TPP would entitle or, or entail local police forces to uh, give a higher priority to uh, things like cracking down on bootleg DVDs and and um, and other internet, file-sharing-related um, uh, kind of mechanisms. So this really, I think, benefits the country that uh, produces the most intellectual property, which is the United States. So uh, if we look at everything in the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, what we know about it now, I think it is clearly to the benefit of the uh, 600 U.S. corporate a representative that designed the agreement. So, I mean, that really comes as no surprise. Mm.
0: So, uh, finally, uh, given the the, the forces in play here and the level of secrecy, what are the chances that this uh, agreement can be derailed, and and where might it Mm. be derailed? As far as the Malaysian
3: context goes, uh, we see, again, as I mentioned, uh, um, no uniformity in the government about it, and I think um, uh, I think we have Mahazir Mohammed, who's uh eighty seven now who still wields a lot of control over politics, He's ardently against the trans-pacific partnership. He often blogs about it. Uh, and I think uh, his his words still carry a lot of weight in this country. And now we see the Prime minister who once uh, you know spoke pretty optimistically, but always vaguely about it now i um, uh becoming more skeptical and admitting that there are, are uh, kind of deep concerns, and again, if we look at the history of of attempts to establish an FTA uh, with the United States uh, they've they've fallen apart they've gotten nowhere you know uh, Malaysia does not want to be in anyone's orbit, uh, so to speak, but I think if we look at other countries like uh, in Japan, the previous Japanese government was flirting with the idea of uh, joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We see, under the Shinzo Abe government, more of a nationalistic direction. And I think of, of all the countries, the Japanese uh, folks are the the most vocal, the most educated about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, mainly because I think it would affect a lot of the uh, rural population, a lot of the farmers, and, of course, uh, concerns of uh, medication and, and uh, uh, stifling of the Internet and whatnot. So uh, for for whatever reason, the, the Japanese public, uh, more than others, understands the implications of this Trans-Pacific Partnership. But um, as far as uh, my work goes here in Malaysia, I'm planning uh, over the next couple months, uh, Malaysia just, just uh, uh, went through a very tense general election. So I spent a lot of my time covering local politics and the focusing on these issues. But now that uh, the dust is starting to settle, I'm going to spend a lot of effort over the next couple months to... Um, to make people in this country aware, and to, uh, if necessary, build a movement to to uh, educate others about the ramifications of this uh, uh, TPP. And and I think at this point, that is what people in the United States and all the other signatory nations really need to do. Uh, they need to make available the uh, the this information in their own languages, uh, so people are at least on the same page. You know. Um, and uh, I think that is really the only way that this can be uh, stifled.
0: Well, uh, Niall Bowie, I want to thank you for your time and, and sharing those perspectives with us. Um, thank you very much for uh, being agreeing to be on our program. Thank you, sir. Pleasure nice to talk to you. And Niall Bowie is a, uh, an independent political analyst uh, based in Kuala Lumpur. is also a columnist for RT. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca to leave feedback on this program email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.